0: To be in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1 still, and I apologize with all of the things going on. I did not actually print off any kind of outline for you, so you'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. But we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 all the way down through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Dr. Luke continues the story that he has been recounting to Theophilus, and he continues by recording these words. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, Nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are again grateful to gather together with other people who have believed in the gospel of Jesus and have embraced the words we have just read wholeheartedly and without reserve. And even as we gather together after a busy week and preparing for yet another busy week in your providence, we want to hear your word, to be encouraged, to be fed, and then, Lord, to go forth with boldness and courage into this week because of what we have learned. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts that we would be faithful to the words that you have given to us here, and that in all things you might have the preeminence and the glory. For we ask it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I think one of the hardest things as a Christian in the United States of America is not people attacking us, is not people persecuting us in the sense of we're wondering if we're going to get jailed or things like that, I think probably one of the hardest things as, as a Christian in the United States of America is dealing with those who wish to distort or completely cover up the truth of God's word. And that has happened repeatedly throughout human history, so it's nothing unique to our nation, it's nothing unique to our time, But it's definitely the thing that we battle now, and there are plenty of men who I have respected who have preached the Word of God and faithfully proclaimed the Word of God and tried to defend the truths of Scripture before the face of the roaring lion, as it were, trying to devour God's people by distorting or even hiding the truth at times. And like I said, this is nothing new to our time, this is nothing new to our culture. We saw that happen in the course of church history in the last 2,000 years. The, The church, the Roman Catholic Church particularly, was distorting the truth of the gospel, and it wasn't until the 16th century that finally somebody was digging into the Word of God and found the reality of the gospel. Well, our day is no different. We still have the same problems. We have people trying to distort the truth. Why do I bring that up? Because the text before us probably evokes two different emotions. One emotion is. The wonderful Christmassy feeling that we all get during Christmas time when you read certain portions of the Christmas story. And I will admit to you, that is definitely the feeling I get whenever I read this passage of scripture. But I think the one feeling that some people get, but most of us don't, is the significant weight of this passage right here in the teaching of the church, particularly in the teaching of Christ. And the gospel, and who Christ is, and what he did for us. Because this passage, for us, we think of Christmas time, and most of you probably are like, couldn't you have waited to <laughs> preach this passage closer to Christmas time? But this passage was so debated and so twisted and misunderstood, but also vigorously defended over the course of church history, particularly in the first 500 years, that I think it warrants a careful look for us, because most of us probably could quote this passage of Scripture in our sleep. We've heard it so many times, and probably also Luke chapter 2, and most of, most of Luke 2. We could do the same thing. But this passage of Scripture is absolutely vital to our understanding of who Jesus is, and I want to share that with you this morning in the few moments that we have. What is the point of this passage? What is the point that Luke is trying to get across to us? And I Think it's, there's multiple points, but for sake of time and brevity, I'm just going to focus on one aspect of it, and that is this, that Christ came to earth in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and we are called to exercise faith in that message. Christ came to earth in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and we are called to exercise faith in that message. That is what Luke is trying to get across, because remember, keep, keep in mind, who is he writing to? He's writing to a Roman, a guy named Theophilus, and Theophilus is probably in his mind asking questions about the Christian faith, and Luke, as an apologist, is saying, let me defend the truth claims of Christianity, particularly of these followers who are claiming that this Jesus is the Son of God, that this Jesus rose again from the dead, that this Jesus is the one you must believe on in order to have life. So Luke is defending that belief, and he's now beginning by pointing out that Jesus came to earth to fulfill the promises God gave. God made a promise to his people that there would be a seed of the woman, that there would be a Messiah, an anointed one who would come. And Luke is saying, we found him. It's Jesus. But then... I think Luke also is not just being academic. He's not just being a theologian about this. He's saying, all right, Theophilus, if that's true, then you need to believe it. And let me tell you of an uneducated young woman who did believe it. So let's dive into the text. There's really four headings, if you will, that I'm going to offer for you that surround the text. And then we'll draw some applications as we go along. The four headings are, first of all, a fateful visit. A fateful visit. In verse 26, we read that the angel who had gone to speak with Zacharias in the previous verses is now sent, a few months later, to go to a city called Nazareth that was located in Galilee, and he was sent by God 2 verse 27 a virgin a virgin now i don't i don't i'm not trying to be strange i'm not trying to be crude i'm just asking a question that hopefully you would be thinking if you were reading this how many of you would be writing a story and found it important enough to mention that an angel of god was sent to a woman and by the way she was a virgin It seems irrelevant to any kind of normal story we would be telling, right? Which tells you that Luke is offering this as a point of vital importance. The fact that this young woman is a virgin, she has not been married, she has not had any kind of intimate relationship with a man, she has been a virtuous young woman, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. All of these details are of vital importance to what Luke is trying to communicate. So this angel is sent to this young woman who is described by Dr. Luke as a virgin, and she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And we learn that the setting here about these two people is that they are of the house and of the lineage of David. And who is that? Well, why is that important? Who, why do we care about David. If I came to you and I was like, hey, I'm Rodney and I'm the son of Rodney, you would probably not really care. (laughs) And if you came to me and told me, hey, I'm so-and-so and and I'm the son of so-and-so, in our culture, we don't really care about those details. But one, for Jewish culture, lineage was of vital importance. And two, for the purposes of Luke, the lineage of David is also incredibly important for what he's trying to communicate to Theophilus. Because if this Jesus is who he said he was, if this Jesus is who his followers are saying he is, then this detail has got to be in there, because he is fulfilling the Old Testament promises that God has given. So, she's espoused to a man or betrothed to a man named Joseph, and he's of the house and lineage of David. And this young woman's name, as we find out from Dr. Luke, was Mary. So this is the setting. A fateful visit one day, months after Zacharias and and his wife, Elizabeth, become pregnant with a child that God had promised to them. And in verse 28, the angel speaks. The messenger of God, the angel Gabriel, speaks. He has only just, uh, several months before this, gone and chastised Zacharias. Reminding Zacharias, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now he's coming to a young, uneducated, down-to-earth, normal young woman who is in the course of ordinary providence looking forward to the day when her espoused husband will one day come to her and say, I have finally prepared a place for us. Come with me that where I am there you may be also. She's looking forward to that day. But on that day, it wasn't her, her betrothed that showed up. It was an angelic creature. And this angelic creature appears seemingly out of nowhere and says to her, rejoice! Not, not hey, how are you doing? It's me. Don't, don't freak out. It's just me. I'm Gabriel. I talked to your cousin a little bit ago. No. No, no, no. The first thing he says in the King James is hail. But if you have a different translation, it probably says something like rejoice. Rejoice. Find great joy in this moment. This is a wonderful, momentous occasion. Because what I have to share with you is of good news. And this good news is, first of all, that you are highly favored and the Lord is with you. What a precious truth for Mary to hear. I guarantee you, for Mary, after not hearing from prophets for 400 years, is not expecting an angel to show up in her house. And most of all, she's probably not expecting to hear that God has highly favored her, of all people. There are plenty of other more important women in the culture at that time, I'm sure, who were married to men of great importance. And so when she hears this, betrothed to a normal carpenter, she might be thinking, what's going on here? And he says to her, continuing on in verse 28, blessed are you among women. Here God is communicating his divine message not to a man like Zacharias, but to a woman. There really, over the course of the Old Testament narratives, are very few occasions where God speaks particularly and directly to a woman primarily, and most of the time, he's speaking to the men. But here, God has sent his messenger to a young woman named Mary. Now, if you're Mary, the next verse should not be a surprise to you, because it says when she saw him, number one, she's troubled at his saying, what are you talking about? Who are you? What are you doing here? And why are you saying that I am favored and most favored among all the women? What is going on? I think this is probably downplaying the actual terror that she's experiencing right now. Because if any of us saw an angel of the Lord, I'm pretty sure most of us would not be able to stand on our feet. Most of us would be quaking and shaking. But the angel says to her in verse 30, do not be afraid. So we move now from a fateful visit to number two, a fearful servant. She's troubled and he immediately has to say what the angels repeatedly have to say to people they're talking to. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't fear. You have found favor with God. This is a wonderful pronouncement. Like, isn't that that not what you want? Don't you want to hear that you have found favor with God? I don't know who your favorite Old Testament character is, but mine is Daniel. And I could say a close second would be Joseph. But one of the things I love about Daniel is He's being faithful in a pagan context with people who took him captive and he's working for them and virtually nothing is said about him that's bad. Of course he was a sinner and he acknowledged that in his prayer in chapter nine, but Daniel was a normal guy trying to be faithful. And on one occasion when Daniel is praying to God and God answers his prayer, the messenger says to him, you are favored by God because God has listened to your prayer, and I've come because of your words. Well, here now is a woman who hears the words of an angelic messenger, much like the great prophet Daniel, who says to her, don't be afraid. You are highly favored by God. And then he goes into number three, the third heading, a favorable message. We saw the fateful visit from the angel Gabriel, to this young woman. We saw that she was a fearful servant. And number three now, we see that he brings to her a favorable message. In verse 31, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and will call his name Jesus. Now, is that unusual news for her? I hope not. Because what was she probably expecting to do? What every other Jewish woman was expecting to do? Get married to Joseph whenever he had prepared a place for her and and him to live. Take her to himself. They get married. And if God's smile and blessing was upon them, they would be blessed with an abundance of children. That was her expectation. Her expectation was that she would conceive in her womb and bring forth a son. In fact, that was her hope. Every Jewish woman and every Jewish man hoped that their firstborn son would be born. This is not at all something that would be surprising for her to hear. But one of the details that's really unique is that she's given a name. And the name is Jesus. In your Bible, it may be in all caps, the name Jesus. And Gabriel continues on describing the character of this Jesus. He will be great. He'll be of great importance. He will be great in the sense of majestic and glorious. And he will be called, notice this, the Son of the Highest. This is where Mary realizes this is not ordinary things going on here. Of course, she's going to hopefully conceive and have a son, but he's going to be called the Son of the Highest? She wasn't educated. She probably did not know the the scriptures as well as, of course, the rabbis and the Pharisees and Sadducees would have known the scriptures, but I'm sure she would have at least known this, that the son of the highest is no ordinary title, that the son of the highest is a unique title reserved for the anointed one of God. And if there was any question in her mind, it was eliminated with the very next phrase when the angel tells her, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay, clearly David's not literally going to be his father. Mary knows that. She's about to be betrothed to a man named Joseph. But somehow David and his throne will be given to this son she's about to bear. I can't imagine the questions that are swirling in her mind. Is this, is this what I think this is? It, is this the coming of the anointed one we've been longing for? God promised to David and to Solomon and all of those people who were kings in the past that there would be a son of David, an ultimate ruler. Is that, is that going to be my son? She hears this favorable message that she is blessed that she will bear a son and that he will be of of this great character and he will ultimately reign on the throne. And the angel concludes, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. David died, Solomon died, and all the kings after them have died. But there will be something about this king where he will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Imagine being a Jewish young woman hearing that. She probably wasn't involved in a lot of the political discussions of the day because that was mostly going to be done by the men, but I'm sure she listened. And I'm sure she knew that the the Jewish people were longing to be relieved of the, the threat of Rome, of the oppressive rulership of pagan kings, people who were Gentiles. You know how the Jewish people felt. They, they believed that all the glory years, like when David was the king, was a thing of the past. And they couldn't wait till somebody would rise up. And at one point, they almost wondered if there would be somebody, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer. They thought the hammer was going to bring in the, the hope of the kingdom being restored. But none of it happened. And here, all the Jewish people are still under the oppression of of the Romans and pagans and Gentiles. But Mary hears this. This child of hers will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Regardless of how Mary and Joseph and all the other Jewish people felt about how invincible Rome was, And no matter how many stories they heard of people who had rebelled against Rome only to be crucified on crosses, she was assured that this son she would bear would have a throne that reigns forever, which means as amazingly strong and impressive as Rome was, this child would rule a kingdom that was unbreakable. So this favorable message that she's given is such wonderful news. But here's the problem. How's this going to happen? She starts to think, okay, okay, things are not adding up here. I am supposed to have a son. And he's going to be called the son of the highest. And he's going to have a throne that lasts forever. And this is supposedly going to happen now. Joseph isn't here. I'm not even technically married yet. I mean, I'm betrothed, and legally I would have to get divorce papers in order to even end this marriage, but I'm not planning on that, and Joseph is not back. So how is this going to happen? Mary, and I want you to notice this, Mary is not questioning the word of God. She's not saying, all right, prove it to me, like Zacharias did. She's literally wondering, God, how are you going to do this? So she asks this question that's in her mind in verse 34. How can this be since I do not know a man? She's not saying, I don't know of a guy. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph for Pete's sake. That's not what she's talking about. She's saying, I have not had any kind of intimate relationship with any kind of man. Joseph is not married to me yet. He's gone. And he's preparing a place for us for when we get married. And I don't know when that's going to be. So how is this going to happen? Am I... Am I supposed to marry somebody else? Is there somebody here in Nazareth I'm supposed to try find? Or, or should I, do I wait for him? Or How is this going to happen? And I wonder, I just wonder, if Mary thought, Gabriel would say, oh, no, 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 no. This is going to happen after you get married to Joseph. When you get married to Joseph, you guys are going to have your firstborn son. And when you do, remember, his name is to be Jesus, And I just want you to know, he's going to be amazing. Mary probably expected Gabriel to say that. But what he actually said was was very different. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called not the son of Joseph, not the son of Mary, but the son of God. Mary is now hearing that this child who will be born to her will not be because her and Joseph had the normal consummate relationship that a husband and wife have. This child she's about to receive will literally be a miracle. An act of God that cannot be explained scientifically. And I'm sure the doubts in her minds of what? This has never happened before. Never in human history has there ever been a woman who got pregnant Without the natural process that God has designed in his creation. And the angel knew, I'm sure, that question. So he mentions in verse 36, hey, listen, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. So Mary, this is the key takeaway for you about this message. With God, nothing will be impossible. And it's almost as though Luke, as he writes that, is kind of winking at Theophilus. Theophilus, you have heard it taught by the apostles that this Jesus, whom people are suggesting, really died and never rose again. These same apostles are also suggesting he's not of human origin. That is to say, he is somebody who was miraculously born. And in case the people that are denying that to you are persuading you, let me remind you of what the angel told Mary. With God, nothing will be impossible. So Mary responds in faith. And this is the fourth heading here for you, a faithful response. We saw the, f- the fateful visit. A fearful servant, a favorable message, and now number four, a faithful response. In verse 38, here was Mary's response. She said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, be it to me according to your word. She responded with faith. I believe. Unlike Zacharias, who demanded from God an explanation, this uneducated young woman, simply says, let me be the vessel you want me to be. And if this is how this is going to work, I don't understand it, I don't get it, nothing in human history has ever happened like this before, but you are an angelic creature, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, I will believe you. And that was her faithful response. Now, that is the text. Why did I bring up at the beginning that this is one of the most important texts in the gospel according to Luke, here's the reality. In the early church, they had to combat the naysayers to the teachings of the apostles. And the naysayers were saying everything from, he didn't raise from the dead. People don't raise from the dead. The Sadducees were the the liberal religious sect of their day, and they constantly were harping against the Pharisees, saying, The miracles can't happen. Things happen according to natural order and natural design. But these apostles are saying, This guy rose from the dead, and guess what else? He didn't have a human father. He was born to a woman who had never slept with a guy, she was a virgin anybody in their right mind, according to the naysayers, would know that that's an utterly ridiculous thing to say. How on earth could anybody with any sentient realities about them believe that somebody was born of a virgin that is utterly illogical and incredibly ridiculous? And yet... This was of vital importance, and here is why. Because if Jesus was just like me, and just like you, where he simply had a human father and a human mother, then what is passed on to him that is different from us? Absolutely nothing. He would have a sinful human nature. He would not be God. He would be a human being. One person with one nature. One person, a human, with a human nature. But the apostles and the early church realized that if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, like the angel told Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1, if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then there has to be something different about him because we can't save ourselves from sins. Humans cannot save themselves from sins. There's no human being. If I were to stand up here and to die on that cross right back there for everybody else, it would mean nothing. I'd be dying for myself. I can do nothing to propitiate the wrath of God against you. So the apostle said there has to be something people realize that Jesus is not a normal human. Jesus is God. This is the thing. When, When we ask the question then through the book of Luke, what is Luke trying to get across? He's trying to say, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And when John finishes his gospel, what does he say his thesis statement is? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has to be God. But here's what happened then all of the naysayers to Christianity said, okay, well, how does that work then? Because I didn't think that God could take on human form. Don't you guys teach in your theology that God is a spirit? So if God's a spirit, how did Jesus come down here as a human being? And the Christians really had to wrestle with that for the first several centuries of church history because they thought Uh, That's actually a good question. How does God take on human form? And so there were some people who gave their best attempts. There was a guy named Arius. And in the third century, or fourth century, he was suggesting that Jesus, here's how it worked, Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, came down and he had... Really, one nature, just like you and I. like We're humans. We have a human nature. We, we don't possess things like omnipresence. We can't be everybody, everywhere at the same time. That's, that's the limits of human nature. We can't do that. But they, Arius said, but there's something about Jesus that's different because he's still God, and God's omnipresent. So here's what happened. God has the God nature, the divine nature, and God can be everywhere. God is all-knowing. God knows everything. He can see everything. He, is, he lives in eternity. But Jesus was a human also, but, but not quite that. Really, he was kind of a mixture of the two. So he had one nature, but it was kind of like a mixture between divine nature and human nature. Swish it together, and you have the Jesus nature. And he was kind of his own thing. And in 325, at the Council of Nicaea, where all of these church leaders gathered together to consider some things, including things that Arius was saying, they said, that, 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 that doesn't work. That doesn't work. The more you read the scriptures, you realize that it isn't going to explain how Jesus could be born of a virgin, how Jesus as God could also have human flesh. And so they opposed Arius, and they said what he said is actually heresy. So if you hear somebody saying that, you'll know that 1,700 years ago, it was condemned, <laughs> and it's heresy. But there was another guy, only a century later, and he read these texts, like the one we just read. He was like, Arius was wrong. We know he was wrong. Jesus wasn't just a mixture of human and divine. He had two natures. He had a human nature where he ate food, and he had to sleep, and he cried. But he also had a divine nature— Jesus is all-knowing. He's God. He had a divine nature, and he he can be still everywhere all at once. So really, we have to make sure that we separate those two things. So there's a human Jesus, but there's also a divine Jesus. And essentially, Nestorius, this, this guy, kind of fell into the opposite ditch where Arius said, well, Jesus was just kind of a mixture. He wasn't really God, but he wasn't really man either. He was kind of a mix. Nestorius fell in the other ditch and said, well, he was kind of two people. There was the human Jesus that we saw, but he was also the God Jesus, too. He was kind of two people and almost schizophrenic in a sense. And the church, again, had a council to talk about that. And they're like, no, he's wrong, too. So you finally get to the question that people were asking. Then why does the Bible have to talk about the fact that he was born of a virgin? And here's what they said. They said, Jesus is one person. There's not a human Jesus and a divine Jesus. He's one person. But he still had two natures. He still had the human nature where he slept because he was tired, and he ate food because he got hungry. Remember Jesus in the wilderness? He hadn't eaten for 40 days, and it says he was hungry. Does God get hungry? Of course not. God doesn't get hungry. So he had a human nature, but he is also God because only God can do things like make a blind person see and make a lame person walk and make a dumb person speak and raise somebody from the dead. Only God can do that. So he's one person. He is Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. But there's two natures. And when Luke now is recording this, Luke is thinking about all of this stuff. And Luke is saying, it is of vital importance that Jesus not be fathered by a human father he has to be miraculously brought in the incarnation through the power as it says in verse 35 of the holy spirit the highest will overshadow her but the humanness that jesus got the human nature he took on he got because he was born to a virgin named mary why is all of this important Because there are people today who want to suggest to us as Christians that it's not really a big deal. Why argue about whether or not Jesus had two natures? Why argue about whether Jesus was born of a virgin? Can't we just suggest that Jesus was a good teacher who taught good things and good morals and we should try to live like he did? For Luke and Paul and Timothy and Peter, and all the rest of the apostles, these things that the people in our day are trying to suggest are not important, are not worth discussing or trying to defend, for them, it was their lifeblood. Because if we give up on who Jesus is as God and taking on a human nature, then we are giving up our very faith. We have to defend who Jesus is. And so one of the marks of whether or not somebody is a Christian is whether or not they believe Jesus is God. There were people in Luke's day and in Paul's day who were saying he couldn't possibly be God. No human being could be God. Why do you think the Jewish people, like the religious leaders, wanted to stone Jesus when he said, I and my Father are one? Because it was unthinkable that a human being could be God. They thought it was blasphemy. And ever since, for 2,000 years, that's what people have been trying to do is shake our faith in the reality of Jesus being God. But Luke is telling Theophilus, don't you let them shake your faith. I talked with these people. Here's what Mary said. Exactly, word for word, what the angel told her. This Jesus was born through the miraculous providence and working of God. So Theophilus, remember, with God, nothing will be impossible. So let me finish by saying this. This text of scripture for us may give us warm, fuzzy feelings at Christmas time because we like the Christmas spirit and we like the Christmas feelings. But this text of scripture is literally one of the foundations to the gospel Because if Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he really is not the son of God, then our faith is in vain and we are of all people most miserable. But Luke tells Theophilus, this is of vital importance, my friend, and you have to believe it in order to be a Christian. Don't let the naysayers, don't let them fool you, don't let them turn you away from this, and don't let them minimize it. Because that's what people are doing today. There are people who claim to be Christians saying, this isn't important. Who cares? It's not a big deal. Yes, it is. And don't you listen to them. You continue steadfastly contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and believe exactly as Luke wants us to see here. Christ came to the earth in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and we are called to exercise faith in that message too. That's our call as Christians. Let's pray. Lord, the joy that we have is our faith is not a blind faith. It's not an unreasonable faith. We know that you sent the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, to earth so that he could have a perfect divine nature so that when he hung on the cross and cried out, it is finished and gave up his spirit. He was doing so with a perfect record that can be applied to any person in this room who places faith in him. So Lord, I ask of any person in this room who has yet to place his or her faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would move in their hearts to see with eyes of faith the truthfulness of this text, the truthfulness of the gospel, the truthfulness of the message of Jesus, and that they would believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. In so doing, Lord, please save their souls. And for us as your children who have believed this message, help us not to give up ground on it. Please embolden us, give us courage, strength, to with grace and kindness but firmness and steadfastness resist those who wish to undermine the faith, to make it seem like certain aspects of it aren't important, when in reality you have clearly laid out for us how important these truths are. Help us not to give in, not to waver. Strengthen our faith so that one day when we see our Lord Jesus Christ and our faith is made sight, we will see him with joy as unashamed workmen. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us in Christ, we pray. Amen.